Coming to you from the greatest city in the world, this is the number one showbiz podcast. It's Talk for Two. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Talk for Two. On this 19th anniversary of 9-11, I am honored to welcome a multi-academy award-winning filmmaker whose work has retold real-world events, including the events at the World Trade Center. His films have entered the pop culture lexicon, transcending what it means for one person to be a movie director and writer. His new book, Chasing the Light, chronicles the making of Platoon, Midnight Express, Salvador, and Scarface. It is my honor to welcome Oliver Stone. Mr. Stone, yeah. thank you for being with us. I really appreciate it. Okay. Well, that sounds good. Well, before we get to this book, we'll get to Chasing the Light in a minute. I want to talk uh, to you about today being 9-11, World Trade Center. That film has stayed with me. I saw it years ago, and I still remember it. What spoke to you about that story, of all the stories of that day, of telling well, that story of those real people during that well, event? Thank you. Thank you. That, that film means a lot to me, actually. It really it was, a, for me, a, both a, a great victory and also a, kind of a sad uh, defeat, in a way I can explain, but in terms of my career. But it was a very difficult movie to make, and we undertook it. I undertook it with uh, off the screenplay by Andrea Ber- 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 I'm sorry, <laughs> Andrea Berlin, Berlin. Mm-hmm. and she uh, wrote a very good uh, original screenplay. It's too long; it was too too many uh, scenes uh, in the going back and forth and forth. So it was a hell of a rewrite, but uh, we got it down to a sizable. You know, I think it was five, six times we cut back and forth because there was a family story attached to those two men. All true story, you know. We were, we lived it with them. We went to New York and we got to know. I have a picture in my in my room with all the crew and the actors and the rescuers, the the uh, uh, the two men yep. literally lived this story. John and uh, and Will, John and Will, John Laughlin and, and Will Hermano. Uh, lived this story. I think they were in that hole. I, I didn't do my research before this show. I didn't know you were going to talk about it, but so I'm not up to date on the details. They were in for, I believe, 36 to 48 hours. Sure. And uh, they were in a, in hell. I mean, they were the last, next to the last. There was, I think, they were number 17 and 18 pulled out of the hole. Yeah. In other words, there were 19 or 20 survivors of the whole thing, only, and they were almost the last people pulled out. And they were in terrible shape. Uh, John's hip was crushed. It's, he's still in, still in in poor shape, and he, it hurt like hell. I mean, this thing uh, has it crippled his life. But he's got a great spirit, indomitable. So is Will. Will also had major injuries, but he's bounced back too. They were both with us the whole shoot. They were wonderful, wonderful spirits, and uh, they brought and infected the crew. Complicated movie to shoot because we had to create. It's, it looks simpler than it is, but we have to we have to build the debris. Yeah. We had to build an interior set and an exterior set, a gigantic exterior set in California. We built at the uh, studio there in uh, near uh, Loyola Marymount. Uh, gigantic outdoor set with beams, gnarled, everything was you know. It took a major work from our, from Jan Rolfs, who was our production designer. And then inside was even more complicated because we had to 
build these gnarly, twisted balls of steel and and rubble, and we had to lift the actors into these things every day. In other words, if if Nick Cage went into that hole, uh, he was in for you know unless he had to pee, which would take another twenty minutes <laughs> to get him in and out. It was it was a full day's work, yeah, or half day's work, and then lunch break. In other words, it's a hell hell of a number to shoot that and. I had to stand sideways, or be, I was in very uncomfortable positions directing it, as was Bob, uh, not Bob, uh, uh, gosh, uh, my, my DP, who was a wonderful English uh, DP. Oh, you said I haven't researched, you said I haven't caught up, I don't have I'm sorry to catch you off guard, I just, I, today being the day, I wasn't going to actually air this today, but I thought, you know what, you directed one of the most important pieces, uh, retelling of this time in American history that... I had to ask you and air it timely. I normally don't do this quick of a turnaround, so sorry for catching you off guard there, but the point of the matter is it it was a very important labor, and I thank you very much for doing it because that film is just you know, so important. I, I just want to add one little thought. Uh, when, when, uh, the, the second, the, the last third of the movie is the rescue. Yeah. Once they're spotted by, by the character played by Michael Shannon, uh, the rescuers come down, and that was as much of an effort to get them out as it was to survive. And it was very dangerous. Uh, and we shot with about 70 or 80 of the actual rescuers. So those are the real men uh, who went down there. Some of them reenacting it. All of them had been at the World Trade Center for those few days afterward, pulling people out, looking for, looking for people that didn't exist anymore. But it was really something to work in that crew. And, and then when it was, uh, the, the spirit was infectious. I thought it was the most accurate movie I probably ever shot in terms of detail by detail, and I took great pains to do it. It came out and it made and it did very well in terms of internationally. It made uh, good money and all that, but of course there was the shadow of 9/11 over it. And a lot of people had very emotional reactions. Why are you making a movie about this? And, you know, which I find strange because it, four years had gone by. Uh, four, about four years had gone by, and I just thought it was time, you know. Uh, in other words, not making too much out of it. Don't overreact. We had already gone to war against uh, Afghanistan and now Iraq. It was insane. And I was, in a way, spiritually trying to convey that here is the real suffering that happened. Here's what happened to the people who were there. These guys saw it at the center of it. They were talking ground zero, and, and don't overdo it. It was a tragedy, but a country is going hysterical with all these Patriot Act decisions and exaggerated global war on terror, sending armies to other foreign countries. It seemed nuts to me. So I was trying to ground the, ground the country. That was the point. Yeah. It wasn't received that way. It was received well, but many people were carping at it. And at me, uh, there was a scene at the end, you remember, when uh, Shannon says uh, he's going to get his revenge for it this, and by which he meant he was going to go to Iraq, which he did. The character went to Iraq for two tours or something, and he was carping at the film, too. But the truth was, he'd said that, and I'd put the words in his mouth, but then it was interpreted as if I was saying we needed to get revenge. <laughs> in other words, they politicized everything with me. Yeah. And that, it, it, it spoiled the show. I mean, they were, there was a lot of, uh, we didn't get any recognition for the work we did with the Academy or anything, which hurt because so much effort was put in by the designers, everybody, uh, and Nick Cage uh, and uh, Michael Pena, as well as Maria Bello and Maggie Gyllenhaal. 
I thought there was a bias against it, and I kind of felt uh, that the, the, I was at that point cut off from the industry. They had, they had declared me a pariah. So uh, that was my reaction at the time, and it still was. It's still true. Well, if I can, just as a fan of your work, say that I think over time, it's been now 14 years, I would hope uh, that that has fallen aside and the work just stands on yeah. it, on its own. It's certainly very Yeah, beautiful. I do really think it was a... You know, the truth is that, the, you know, what you call it, United 93, which is a good film, mm-hmm. but it's really, it's all speculation. We don't know what happened in that plane, right? Right. And that film, <laughs> which is a uh, recreation of what they think happened, was honored uh, with a Best Picture nomination. And our film, which had taken painstaking uh, details and done it the way it happened, was ignored. So it's sort of a strange reversal of what usually happens in this process. Wow. It's... But that's the film, uh, the whimsy of the film uh, critic business. Yeah. And you talk about critics in the book, Chasing the Light. You mention them. Sure. And you talk about uh, Roger Ebert being the voice of Middle America, and then you yeah. have you talk about the New York Times. Do you personally put any stock in what the critics have to say, or do you look more towards the people who are paying the money and sitting down in those well, theaters? A bit of both, but you have to realize that the critics with the, with the media and the, the modern media have mm-hmm. reached a, a loud echo. It's a loud echo chamber, and uh, it carries. And it means it apparently has more echo in Hollywood than it does really in the real world, but uh, it does affect the outcome of a picture, no question. Especially when you have a picture that you have to sell in a way that's big because you, it's a big investment by Paramount. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of that going on, and it's gotten bigger and noisier. And I'll deal with it in, when I write about that, and not in this book, Chasing the Light, but you know, which only goes up to 1986, seven. But uh, I want to go back to that issue because uh, the critics have destroyed many fine films, actually. Yeah. Although Roger Ebert was always my favorite because he was really middle. He was the voice of reason, and he he reacted as if, I mean, emotionally to things the way I do. Mm-hmm. And I like those kind of critics who are human beings and who are not living in some airy space where they are different from everybody else. Another thing critics love to do is they love, as I said in the book, they love to interpret the filmmaker. In other words, in my mind, that there should be no filter between the filmmaker or film and audience. They should go directly to each other. And by putting the filter in and say, well, I know more than you do because I know, I know this filmmaker and he's done this, 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 and that sucks and that sucks and he's, he's got his weakness here and he, his weak spot, blah, blah, blah. They put this kind of wall between us and them which is a shame, but I'm glad you're saying what you're saying because you represent something else, the real, the real world, the real audience, I well, think. It's funny because my major in college, it's funny you say that because my major in college was film and screen studies, not film and filmmaking, film and screen studies, where you sit uh-huh. there and you read criticisms by somebody that was not involved in the movie making, trying to imbue meaning into what the director meant. What do you make yeah. of film theory? in and of itself, since you brought that up with criticism, is that one of those walls where people try to read too much? I think into it's a wall, your... yeah. I yeah. think yeah. critics, uh, and also the money, promotion, the way it's promoted, the money you put into the promotion, all this kind of twists the, the innocence of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's a shame, because the film is 
every film should be judged on its, not judged by the audience on its own merits. In other words, it doesn't matter if the filmmaker is somebody you don't like or somebody whose last film you hated. The whole point of it is that a film is unto itself. The director has only so much. Uh, he has also a script. He has actors. He has a production around him. So uh, every film changes. And anybody who buys into the theory that the director is a god of some kind is, is nuts because it doesn't work that way. And if you look at the best, most highly valued filmmakers, they make a lot of stinky films <laughs> and, uh, in the course of a career yeah. or films that you don't care for. So it, it just there's no through line on this thing. I mean, and we're talking everybody. There's not one exception to the rule. I want to talk about the book, Chasing the Light. What's the light? Mm-hmm. Yes, Chasing the Light. That was my life for <laughs> most of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Why now? Why put, why put pen to paper down? And I want to thank you, before I let you answer, for doing a book that isn't so much a memoir where you get the whole life, but you really focus in on that 10-year time period with those yeah. films. Why now? And what was the process like to dig back and to do that research? Yeah, I, I wanted to write a memoir. This is not an autobiography. It's not covering factually your life. Mm-hmm. I, he did this, he did that. I've read those biographies. Um, I wanted to give it a theme. It's written like a novel. I mean, it's a tackling like a novel. Here's yeah. a young man who's uh, at 30 years old, and he opens at 30 in New York, 1976, during the bicentennial. And he's got no hope, none, he's got nothing going for him. He's tried very hard. He's had a mixed history with success and failure. And uh, he's come to a crossroads in his life at 30, as many people do at the age of 30, in those days anyway. And uh, he, uh, he, he, things happen on his 30th birthday. He rededicates himself to his work, partly because of his grandmother's death in France. His family means a lot to him. His, his uh, mother's mother died, and she was uh, the mainstay of his life. And uh, his death, her death scene, I think, is very moving to me. He goes to uh, he goes to Paris to see her lying out on a deathbed, and uh, communicates with her uh, in a very deep way. Uh, and it goes back in time to the parents of the 1950s to 60s. It's like learning about your life by rethinking. I mean, you get to a certain age. I'm 74 four now, 72, three when I wrote it. So, you know, it's a chance to really think about it because when you're doing it, living your life, it's going so fast sometimes or you're so involved in it that you don't get the picture, the whole picture. And I think that's the beauty of reevaluation. or as Socrates said, know thyself, you know, very important. And this was a very liberating experience. It gave me a lot of spiritual uh, nourishment uh, to do this. Um, it's very necessary. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, for me, it's a man about a me about me. I mean, it's a realization of a dream. He had a dream at twenty-two, three, to become a writer director, and he had to pay a deep price for it. He many setbacks, failures, disappointments, and successes too. You learn from both success and failure. So finally, uh, after thirty, he begins to have breakthroughs. And, of course, again, reversals, too. So it deals with that 30 to 40 period in the last half of the book. And at 40, he's achieved, suddenly, out of the blue, making two films back-to-back, Salvador and Platoon, 
coming back from complete failure, being an outcast, not not having achieved his dream in, in Hollywood, being you know living off in some potato barn in Long Island, <laughs> he he comes back with two films that hit, and one two punch that puts him back on at the top of the world because he wins the Oscar at 40 with a platoon. He impacts the world. The film goes around the world, makes money on top of it, gets good reviews, does everything you can dream of uh, succeeding with a film. It happened then in 1980. On top of that, he gets a kiss. He gets a kiss Elizabeth Taylor gives him the Oscar. Elizabeth <laughs> is his favorite actress when he was young. So it's quite a dream that came true. It was enough. You know, that it's enough. He achieved it. That's the end of that story. Yeah. And it's a good story. It is, because... So you see, I'm looking at it more than the novel, but, but it's true. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's true to me, anyway. That's the way I see it. So, but then what happens after 40 is there's going to be a lot of detours and a lot of twists and turns, but it's just another story. Right. What I love about this book, and what I love about, and you talked about this in other interviews I was reading to prepare, is about hitting your stride, not till your thirties. You you were really worried it was, it was you were thirty and it hadn't happened for you. It seems like today, especially in this world of social media, if you haven't hit your stride by twenty five, you're out on your butt. What would you say? What would you say to the artist who is still trying to break through and feels like they're not going to succeed? Well, I don't hold truck with that. I don't know why you say the age of 25. I, I think 25 is pretty young, and mm-hmm. still you're learning, learning a lot. I think the, there's no age limit on this thing. An artist is a person who's developing. He's experimenting with the world in an honest way. And this experiment goes on and on and on. But certainly you'd like to see some markers of success. You know, I can't judge social media. That's a strange phenomenon to me. I'm perhaps too another generation, but it seems like there's a lot of too much opinions on social media, too much uh, canceling and dissing of people. I, I don't like that aspect of it. It's it's uh, it's it's cruel and it's rough. Mm-hmm. So you you can't buy into that. Uh, you have to develop yourself. Some people develop slower than others. You know they. Some people don't have any success until they're in their 40s. They become novelists or playwrights or less so in the, in the technical trades, obviously. But still, architects sometimes take until their 40s, 50s to go. Frank Gehry, I know him, he became very successful about 60. <laughs> there's no, yeah. there's no different times for everybody. And anybody who tells you that 25 is a bust, forget it. That's crazy. To the contrary, we're going to live longer because of medicine and health. So uh, I don't put any time period on this, and I tell my children repeatedly not to think about. It. I mean, like you got to give them the, the realization they're going to live on for longer than you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now I want to switch gears here and talk about your presidential films, and when you are looking at the life of a president and you're deciding to do these opuses, what are the touch points for you? And will you do something for Trump? Will you do a Trump movie, you know, six years down the line? As in six an, years, I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be about 80. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see about that. No, I don't know. Right now, I have no desire to make a feature film. It's just the last one was so difficult. Snowden movie was 2016. 
Yeah. You know, just with the research and, and all the difficulties of raising the money. Mm-hmm. It was made out of Europe. We shot most of it in Germany for the United States. And uh, it, was, it just takes a lot out of you. I mean, right now I've been doing documentaries more and more since 2001. I've done eight or nine documentaries. Yeah. And they're very direct, and you know, you can you get right to the point, and you say what you want to say. I did. I spent five years working on Untold History of the United States with Peter Kuznick. I'm very proud of that. It's a it's a visual documentary, twelve hours long. Yeah. Do you ever see it? Yeah, it's on Netflix, of course, of course. Okay. Well, it's just a it's a great. It's another view of this of the American story since yeah. 1898. That's a big. It's a big ambitious project. I think we succeeded. A lot of people think so too. Right? Progressive historians have, se- have seen it and praised it. Mainstream, less so. No, <laughs> <laughs> so I haven't. I've, in a way, I've sort of stepped away from the mainstream because the mainstream has increasingly looked bleak to me, and I'm not very pleased with what's going on in the country. I don't know that their thinking is right. I don't know that they've led us to the same place. Right. They've led us in a way to Trump. I mean, but Trump is not the worst president. We had in my lifetime. It was certainly George Bush, who the the, the son who uh, put America on a complete new magnetic compass course with, after 2000. Mm-hmm. Not only stealing the election, but on top of it, creating a mess after the 2001 story uh, with wars, global war on terror. It's just insane what's happened. Patriot Act surveillance. The country's gone to took a real step backward. Which had no re- it had no reason to. I mean, as you saw in World Trade Center, those two guys recovered. They went out back to a life. We had to get back to life, and we didn't. Mm-hmm. We we were sore losers. We kept bitching about it. And we got to get even. Blah blah blah. It doesn't work that way. Revenge doesn't work. So uh, sad. I mean, the mainstream's gone haywire. Is what I'm trying to say. And yeah. I feel less in touch with America than ever. Wow. What do you think will put you back in touch? Oh, I mean, uh, a <laughs> change in direction, you know. It'd be nice to have a candidate for office who really believed in peace and making friends in the world and having partners, you know, which I don't see any sign of in this country. It seems like a neoconservative element has really locked, a small element has locked into Washington, into the brain, and allied with, a, even allied with liberal Democrats has has somehow created this, coalition for war for constant aggression as if we as if we are threatened there's no realization that america is totally rich and prosperous and was uh, you know had great geographic uh, advantage over other nations as well as wealth and it's all being dissipated in this madness of putting a trillion dollars a year into a war budget <laughs> yeah completely lost madness perspective everything it's, what we need is a roosevelt or a kennedy kennedy saw it and of course he he was doing something about it when he got knocked off. But we need that. We need Roosevelt's and Kennedy's. And uh, unfortunately, uh, Obama was, I had hopes for Obama, but he was ultimately a weak man who didn't want to confront this. Yeah. I'm actually going to interrupt you there for a second because you talked about the Kennedy assassination. Doing JFK, what conclusion did you come to about the assassination? What, is it just a consp- what are the conspiracies just ridiculous or in your mind with what you believe is there something to maybe that there was more of it? No, I think I think you should see the movie again. I mean, it's pretty hard hitting. Yeah, I mean it, the, the facts of the, the way the Warren Commission 
came to these conclusions is a, is a farce. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, it has to be, as I said at the time, I looked to the, uh, some, it came from a power structure inside this Washington. Uh, you know, I think people in the CIA, people with some military cooperation, there was a small group, but it, it did, it did a, it did a job. It did a job of great job of cover up too. Yeah. And it's a complicated story. And we went, I'm going back into it with this four hour documentary. I'm, been working on JFK, oh, wow. uh, Destiny Betrayed with Jim D. Eugenio, who's done a, who's a modern researcher, who's done a lot more work into this assassination. Mm-hmm. We, deal, we bring up all the facts that have come out in this investigation since 1991. When the movie came out, it launched the JFK Records Act out of Congress, which is amazing. Yeah. And they, they did it to, of course, bury the film and embarrass it, but it didn't work that way. It worked into a, they created an assassination, assassination records review board that existed, they didn't have much power, but they existed for six, seven years. They had the right to, they couldn't investigate, but they they had the right to review, review the records. It's complicated. Yeah. And what they did was review, and they saw, a lot of stuff got out. Small stuff, but important, crucial stuff. In the, and I'm going to bring that out in the film. It's, it's, it just seems, it cements the case that something happened, major something happened. The CIA, you have to look to them, Above all, and you know, other people in government agencies, there was, seems to have been some malfunction, major malfunction. Right, and I agree with you. I agree with you. Now, before I let you go, we only have a few minutes here left. There's two quick things I want to ask you about. Um, and if this first one, I'll edit this out. If you don't want to answer this, I don't want to catch you off guard. But it's in the news that the Academy now has inclusivity requirements for Best Picture. What do you make of that? What do you make of that change? Good change or a slippery slope? I don't like any kind of rules. Uh, I'm a, I like uh, as much freedom as possible. I'm not into this political correctness of the, of the time. I think it's, it's you know, it's going to happen anyway. Uh, the, 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 the more diverse we become as a nation and the immigration is there, the old ways were going out anyway. It was, you know, it's, it was never as as uh, awful as they say. There was thing misperceptions, but it, imp- it life tends to improve itself, like nature does. Uh, and uh, so I, I I'm not wild about. It. I don't know all the details and don't want to know, frankly. And my last question for you, and this might seem a little trite, but I genuinely want to know because again, I was a film major, and I know a lot of the, my film major friends are going to listen to this in addition to our wider audience. To you, if you had to nail it down in a couple of paragraphs, what makes a great film? Okay, what makes a great film? Film? Yeah. A great what film? A film, just a great film. What are the, to you, what when you watch something and you say that was a great film, what are the elements you look for? I, I, that's very dramatic what you're saying. I just, you know, you don't ever get that. I mean, it's very rare. You think sometimes, oh, that was a great film. Mm-hmm. And that's sometimes very enthusiastic, and then time goes by, and you see it again. You know, you, 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 this is a con- like America itself. It's a constant turmoil of experiment. Mm-hmm. You think we think things. I've seen so many films that I saw later, questioned, uh, seen films that I did not like originally that I reevaluated years later, and I said, "Wow, it's, I missed that." You know, this this is in the mind. It's subjective. Uh, this ten best list is silly. Uh, you know, the best of the best of this. I mean, 
it doesn't work that way. Life doesn't work that way. You don't realize when you're going through life what the greatness of it is sometimes, because it's so ordinary, and the greatness is hiding behind the ordinary. So I, I would always avoid that. I mean, I, I don't like those lists. I would really say I have seen, in my lifetime, uh, more than 200, maybe 300 great films. Uh, hmm. And and I keep finding the resource. I mean, I love in the in this. I've always looked at old films as a you know, stay in, watch a movie uh, on a big screen is is a pleasure. And I've discovered so many films from the 30s and the 40s, especially and 50s, 60s, 80s, 90s, but 30s. Just amazing stuff. It was done by real people. Uh, sure. and, uh, in other words, we don't have to ever make another film. I think people could really, there's a treasure there, a renaissance of films that are available, treasures, treasures that are available to the mind. In other words, we can live in our libraries. We can live in our libraries. Yeah. Reread the great books. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we've all had the time, all the time in the world to do that. Oliver Stone, this was beyond an honor when your next jfk project comes out when the documentary comes out when your next volume comes out please come back this was an honor thank you so much sir it's my pleasure that'll do it for us today my thanks again to oliver stone the book is chasing the light remember to subscribe to talk for two in itunes stickter and on spotify and wherever you get your podcasts. You can also check out talkfor2.com for more. Signing off, I'm Matt Bailey, reminding everyone out there to keep talking for two. You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com.